the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Society sends clear messages about what a person is supposed to look like. And when we don't conform, there's a discrimination that takes place that we seldom talk about. Today's guest, Kate Mann, sheds light on the social stigma of obesity and teaches us how to face and manage fat phobia. Kate is an associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University. She's the author of the books, Down Girl and Entitled. Her new book is Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Joan. Kate, society, the media in particular, it sends a very clear message about how we're supposed to look. What happens to us when we repeatedly receive the same messages? So I think many people, girls and women in particular, are constantly being told to shrink ourselves and really that we can never be thin enough and that we should be ashamed of our bodies if we are fat. And for those listeners who don't know, I use the word fat as a merely neutral description of some bodies like mine. Uh, I use it much like we use the word short or tall or for that matter, thin. So it's not a word that I regard as pejorative or negative or judgmental. But yes, I think those messages really tell people that fatness is something to be ashamed of and that it's something we can control. And we know that those messages are very harmful and stigmatizing and also false because they involve people trying to perpetually shrink their bodies in ways that don't tend to work in the long term. How strong do you think this stigma around obesity is? I think it's very strong. I think we see it in education. I think we see it in the workplace, I think we see it in the healthcare system in a particularly harmful way. So we know that fat patients just aren't getting the same level of care as thin patients and will often go to a doctor and be told to lose weight while their real problems go undiagnosed. So in the book, I look at stories of women who went to the doctor with cancer and the true cause of their symptoms were missed because they were living in larger bodies. So they were just told to go lose some weight, get some exercise, eat right. And uh, in one case, the diagnosis was only garnered through a second opinion. In another case, the person tragically died because she didn't receive adequate care in time to treat her endometrial cancer. 
And this isn't mere anecdata either. We also see that people who are classified as obese are 1.65 times more likely to have serious undiagnosed medical conditions upon autopsy. So endocarditis, lung carcinoma, things which may have killed them that weren't getting diagnosed during their lifetime. Are medical professionals becoming more aware of this type of treatment? I think there's been a modest increase in awareness because anti-fat bias is being talked about a little more openly thanks to the brilliant work of not only fat activists in the early 2000s, but also uh, figures who are speaking out about it very visibly and audibly now. But it's still an enormous form of bias that we see isn't really implicit bias either, it's often explicit bias. So physicians will actually tick the box that says they're less willing to help a fat patient, regard fat patients as a waste of their time, and that fat patients are more likely to annoy them. So the bias is still very real, unfortunately. And we have some evidence that in general in the population, anti-fat bias is the only form of bias that is actually increasing when it comes to the implicit side of things. And it is a form of explicit bias that appears to be decreasing the most slowly out of all the ones the researchers from Harvard studied. What is the research telling us is at the root cause of obesity? And, and I ask that because people often think when someone's an alcoholic or an addict that it's something they're choosing, but we now know mm -hmm. that it is a disease. Is it the same case with obesity? Is it always a choice? So I don't view obesity, quote unquote, as a disease. I prefer the word fatness, which is much less stigmatizing. And it's certainly not a choice. We know that most people who are fat really try to lose weight and often do so in the short term through diet and exercise. But the weight comes back really inexorably for the vast majority of people. So big meta-analyses show that when people diet and exercise, they tend to regain the weight in between a third and two-thirds of cases, they'll end up heavier than they started. And when it comes to why people are fat, a lot of the answer is genetics. So upwards of 70% of the variation in the human population that we find in terms of body mass is due to genetics. So that makes weight just a little bit less heritable than height. Now, of course, there are also other factors such as the food environment, such as common illnesses, medications, such as a history of trauma can also contribute to weight gain. But what these factors have in common is that they're unchosen. So yes, this is something which I regard as typically not someone's choice. And frankly, even if it were their choice, I think it would be a valid one. But most fat people are not choosing to be fat. I'm someone who has struggled with my weight my entire life. I am a yo-yo dieter. Mm -hmm. And I was a, a chubby child, a young girl who dealt with it. And it's interesting because I could be 110 pounds now, or I can be 170 pounds. And I still see myself as that fat little girl. The self-esteem mm -hmm. and, and the the way that we view ourselves, it, it really stays with us no matter what our external body looks like. Totally. Yeah, this is a really pernicious way that weight stigma follows people throughout their lifetimes. Oftentimes, no matter what our weight, we don't feel good enough. And it's an interesting point because what I try to show in the book is that weight stigma does harm nearly everyone. So especially girls and women who are being told don't gain weight or else and who often do have a history of, in some cases, disordered eating or even full-blown eating disorders in their past. 
um, because of that stigma, often it's a pretty direct result of being put on diets and told they're overweight. That's one of the biggest triggers, um, although, of course, there are also other reasons why these um, mental illnesses develop. But what I would say is that for people who are larger, the world literally doesn't accommodate our bodies. So there's an extra layer, an extra pointiness to fat phobia in society, which is that we face all of these spaces that really don't accommodate us, don't fit us, and that we face belittling and harm when we're just trying to exist in public. So it's an issue that affects everyone, but I think it affects fat people particularly badly. You mentioned what a person faces when going for medical care. What about in the professional environment? Does it impact the way a person moves up the corporate ladder? Yes, absolutely. So endless research shows that people are discriminated in uh, in the workplace on the basis of their body size in really dire ways. One study compared a thin woman, a fat woman, a thin man, and a fat man for a range of employment opportunities. And these were a diverse range of opportunities, everything from a lecturer to a salesperson to an administrative assistant to a manual laborer. And surprise, surprise, the thin man was judged the most suitable employee for every job opportunity, and the fat woman was judged the least suitable candidate. And there was no difference between their CVs. They were just rotated between the participants. So this shows that workplace discrimination in terms of hiring practices is very real. Now, in terms of promotion and compensation, we also see that when it comes to how much uh, people are actually being paid, millennial women who are very thin earn about $40,000 more than their very fat female counterparts. So that's a massive annual average wage gap just based on body size. So everything you described, it really makes a person who is struggling with weight easily manipulated by all of this external messaging. Yeah, that I think that's exactly right. The ha- we have massive vulnerabilities and insecurities in this area, which the weight loss industry, uh, which will be worth $400, $400 billion globally by the year 2030, it exploits, it preys upon us by telling us that this next diet will be different or you don't really need to eat, you just need to drink this vitamin water or you need this fancy overpriced salad delivery kit. So really this is affecting people's ability to make sober, serious judgments about what will work for them and their bodies and represent a good investment for them. And most times dieting and taking appetite suppressants is really a short-term way of shrinking your body, but the evidence that the weight comes back is so hard to deny that I would argue this is usually not something people should be sinking their time, their money, and their energy into. It would be better saved for other things. So when we're trying to navigate our weight issues and we're getting all of these external messages and and those messages are are really causing us to feel like we're worthless and, and we're less than, how do we combat this? How do we turn this all around so that we can have a better chance of success in life? Mm, yeah, that's it's very tricky because some of this is beyond our control. Having a different attitude obviously won't combat a doctor's discrimination against you. And part of what fat activists often do is help people practice forms of self-advocacy that can be useful in the social context where confidence won't really make a difference, but self-advocacy can. 
So going to the doctor's office and saying, I'm not interested in being weighed. I want a form of care that is weight neutral or weight inclusive, given there's no good evidence that trying to shrink myself will work or improve my health long term. So you mentioned um, a moment ago, Joan, your own experiences with yo-yo dieting. And there is, um, unfortunately, evidence that going up and down in weight repeatedly which is known as weight cycling, can be really bad for our health. So saying to a doctor, look, if I just go in for yet another diet and reduce my weight, that's going to be temporary, and I don't want to engage in weight cycling, which will harm my cardio, uh, cardiovascular system, my metabolic health, my immune system, my mental health, what can you give me that you would recommend for a thin patient with the same symptoms? and the same kinds of needs. So that self-advocacy is a piece of it. But I also think that there is a kind of possibility of thinking of ourselves in how we uh, go through the world and how we exist in our bodies that I call body reflexivity. So this is an alternative to body positivity and neutrality where I think body positivity is a good starting place for many people and I certainly don't want to begrudge someone that entry point into body liberation if they um, find it useful. But I find it a bit in the vicinity of toxic positivity. So being relentlessly positive about your own body can be a tough thing to do in a world that is so fat phobic and so fraught with body image issues and pernicious body norms. Um, and I find body neutrality a better alternative, but being purely neutral about our bodies can be a bit lackluster, a bit one. So body reflexivity is a way of thinking about your body where I say, my body is for me, your body is for you, and our own perspective on our body is the only one that matters. And to me, that takes the sting out of some of the world's judgments because if my body is for me, if it's my home, if I'm the denizen of a body that is my vehicle to get around the world with, it's easier to think of my body as something that really does serve me in so many ways, regardless of what it looks like. How do we get this message to our children, young girls in particular? You know, I always say I would hate to be young today because when I had my struggles mm -hmm. years ago, you know, maybe I saw a Glamour magazine or a, we had less TV channels and so the stimulus wasn't as much. But today, you can't get away from it. These messages are there continually 24-7. And, you know, I, I just can't yeah. imagine what it's like for these children today. It's such a good point, Joan, because... We really can't protect children from these fat phobic messages. I think that's just not realistic. So one book that I think is terrific for parents that I recommend to everyone, really anyone navigating this space who has young children in their life, um, which is many, if not most of us, is Virginia Soul Smith's book, Fat Talk, Parenting in an Age of Diet Culture. And that book makes the argument that we really need to be having ongoing conversations with children which say fat is not a bad word, it's not bad to be a larger person, it's not bad to be fat. If they say, mom, I'm worried I'm fat, the conversation can go, I really hear that worry and I'm sensitive to it, but let's think about the cool fat people we know. Let's think about people who are fat and brilliant 
fat and kind, fat and funny, fat and all sorts of positive qualities that will just insulate the child from thinking this is the worst possible thing you can be, rather than having a really weight-inclusive attitude in the house that we all come in different shapes and sizes, people really don't have a lot of control over their weight, and we should be embracing the diversity of shapes and sizes that we come in as a normal and beautiful part of human diversity. So I think that that message can be helpful. It certainly won't mean the child is then exposed to fat phobic messages, but hopefully they can then learn to push back against them and be critical of them. On something positive, you're starting to see people in the entertainment industry that are more body diverse. So hopefully that voice will continue to get louder. Totally. I share that hope. The book is Unshrinking, How to Face Fat Phobia. Kate, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Uh, Yeah, thanks for that. I am nominally still on Twitter or X at Kate underscore man. I also have a substack called more to hate, kate.man at substack.com. And I am on Instagram too at Kate underscore man. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Joan. What a wonderful conversation. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Do you have a product or service that can change someone's life? Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life is teaming up with reputable professionals that we can recommend to our hundreds of thousands of followers. To learn how you can elevate your business and ranking by being part of the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life directory, visit cyacyl.com slash profiles. How do I give things up is a question I hear almost daily. Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing company serving clients who live with chronic disorganization. Many people living with CD have very deep emotions and find it difficult to let go of what I call heartstrings items. I say, let's work with your emotions rather than fight them. First of all, maybe you don't have to part with those items at all. Who says you have to give up everything that's important to you? If you love something and it makes you feel good, keep it. However, if you're drowning in possessions and can't live that way anymore, you can do something about it. One way, decide to decide. Tell yourself you're going to make a decision. Set criteria for deciding. Then trust yourself that you're doing the right thing. Another way is to have a ritual. Hold it, thank it for its service, bless it, bury it, burn it, kiss it, or take it to its new home, knowing that it will make someone else very happy. A third way is to keep a small part of a larger whole, like just a few favorites or a representative sample of items from a big collection and then pass the rest on. Whatever action you take, doing something to honor yourself and your feelings can help to remove the emotional tie to a material possession. I'm Gail Gruenberg with Let's Get Organized. Call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website at lgorganized.com. We all want 
to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She's here today to discuss the power of boundaries for building a strong and sustainable relationship. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I'm really happy to be here today. So Odette, for the sake of this conversation, when you talk about relationship boundaries, what do you mean? Relationship boundaries are basically limits that we place on ourselves and on our relationship so that we know that our needs are being respected. Why do you think we have so much trouble establishing boundaries? I think that we have trouble establishing boundaries because, first of all, we don't take the time to self-reflect and think about what our needs are and what our boundaries are. So that's one portion of it, one big part of it. We need to understand what we want, and then we need to articulate it. We tend to avoid communicating our boundaries because we don't want to upset the other person. We don't want to make them think that we're upset with them, or that, and we also don't want to push them away. And so then we tend to hold back and not let them know how we feel, not let them know what we need. And that's really detrimental for the relationship. I think also, sometimes we have this notion that if we don't do something that we don't want to do, or if we do something to take care of ourselves, that we're being selfish, that, you know, we're putting ourselves ahead of the relationship. And and I think a lot of women struggle with that. So how do we learn that setting boundaries does not mean we're selfish? Yeah, I think that that's a huge part of it, Joan, and that's a really great point. A lot of women in particular, we struggle with self-worth. We struggle with, we're, we're brought up to take care of others, to be nurturing, to to serve others. And that's fine and that's great. You know, that's actually rewarding. A lot of us find it very rewarding to be nurturing and we want to take care of our families and our loved ones but not to the point where we're not prioritizing ourselves and we're not establishing boundaries. Because ultimately what happens is that we start to become depleted. And then over time, we actually start to resent the people that we actually love and care about the most. And if we were actually proactive and establish boundaries from the beginning, we would be able to not just take care of others, but also take care of our own needs. And also let people know Sometimes people do want to. It's not that they're trying to violate or disrespect our needs or overstep or overstep and, you know, violate our boundaries. It's that they don't know that they exist. They think that it's okay. So unless we take the time to set the boundaries, then they won't be able to respect them. You mentioned self-worth, Odette. I think that's a biggie because a lot of times we don't set boundaries because we're people-pleasing because we feel like that's the only way we can get love. Exactly. We people-please because we think that this is how we're going to get love rather than pleasing just because that's just our nature and that's what we do. So that's a big distinction. If you want to be nurturing, if you want to help others serve others because that's part of who you really are and that's part of your authenticity and you want to do it without expecting anything in return, then that's fine. But when you're doing those things because you want something in return or because you have an expectation in return, that's a red flag. 
not that you should not expect people to reciprocate your kindness and your respect. Of course, we want that reciprocated as well, but we have to do it from a sense of this is just who we are. And in terms of boundaries, you know, we establish boundaries ahead of time. It's important to do that so that we kind of have a guideline for the relationship. And this actually helps us avoid conflict. It actually helps us avoid burnout. It helps us avoid problems. And ultimately, we can just focus on having, you know, a, a, a loving, healthy relationship. So Adette, for someone who's listening to you right now and saying, oh my gosh, she just described me. What's one strategy that person can implement to set a boundary? So the way that you can set a boundary is to, first of all, understand what is it that you need. Understand what your needs are and then understand what are your limits. We think of boundaries in terms of we want other people to respect our boundaries, but really boundaries are for ourselves. We need to respect our boundaries first. And what I mean by that is let's say that you have a boundary that you are not going to accept phone calls after 9 p.m. Well, that's a boundary that you establish, but it's up to you to respect it yourself. So in other words, we can't prevent someone from calling us after 9 p.m., but we can decide what we're going to do if someone calls us after 9 p.m. We can choose to turn off the phone. We can let it go to voicemail. We can just not answer, or we can let them know, listen, don't call me after 9 because I won't be answering the phone. But the first step is really understanding what you need, understanding what your limits are, and respecting them yourself. And then the second part of that is being able to communicate them with the people that you love, with your partner, with the people that you're in a relationship with in a loving way. It doesn't have to be in an adversarial way, in a loving way so that they understand what it is that you need and they can respect it. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. Or as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash odettecoronel. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program, sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.